Go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We are starting our series on the Ten Commandments because, you know, every preacher wants to tell you how you're not living life right enough, you know? Every time, I've, I don't know about you guys listening, when, I, when, I, when I'm going through my mind thinking about sermon series, what should I preach on, my mind thinks like this, what are the things I didn't hear growing up? And what are the things that I heard that I want to hear differently? I want a different perspective. And so, so can I tell you that uh, I'm preaching these Ten Commandments really selfishly for me. Uh, I want them to challenge me. I want them to do something particular in my life. And I'm just going to invite you guys along for the journey. Are you okay with that? Good, good, because you're here, so we might as well go. Before we get into that, I want to just bring to your attention uh, this book of Daniel, chapter 5. That would be a fun book to get into, but today we'll just kind of uh, we'll allude to it. In, in Daniel, chapter 5, we read about this great party that Belshazzar is throwing. Uh, this is after Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, just kind of context, we were talking about Nehemiah a couple weeks ago. Nehemiah was, um, uh, was the, the man that God used to bring back uh, and established the wall from the exile, which is where uh, Nebuchadnezzar had brought the, the people, people of Israel to. So Nebuchadnezzar is actually the person who went and put uh, Israel into exile, and his son later on down the road is Belshazzar, and he's having this huge party. And as he's having this big uh, party, which lasts about six months, three to six months, he says, let's go get the vessels out of the holy of holies that the Jews use, and let's drink out of their cups. Now, you got to understand something, that those cups were only meant for one purpose. They were sanctified and set apart. They were holy, and you could not use that for common use. So basically, you bust up into God's house, and you're drinking out of his favorite cup. That's probably not going to benefit you well. But here, Belshazzar was so prideful, he didn't care, because he was better than those gods uh, that he had conquered. And so he brought out uh, out of them to drink wine out of them. And while, as he's having this party and, and he's drinking wine out of these cups, what we see is this, is that there's this hand that appears over a candlestick and begins to write on the wall. Well, everyone's sober enough to realize this is not normal. And they all freeze and their eyes are kind of like this. And wondering, did you see that? Did you see that? And so this hand is writing. And here's what it writes. It writes, mean, mean, teko apparition or peres. And that simply means, well, they didn't know at the time. And so they said, go get Daniel because he's going to know. He interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's this great prophet. What does it say? And it says, mean, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Teko, you have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Woo. Can you imagine the Lord said that to you? I, I put you in the balance, and I realized I found wanting more in your life. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Or, um, yeah, the, the Persians. And so what we see that night, that very night, is that King Darius walks outside of his palace, and he is killed and murdered, and his whole kingdom is taken over by the, um, uh, by the Medes. What I want you to see is this, is that before we judge Belshazzar, and saying, that unholy, unrighteous king, how would you ever drink out of a holy cup that belonged to God? I'll remind you that this is about 500 years before Jesus was ever born. There was no cross of Calvary. There was no grace. 
It was none of that. It was, it was way before he knew uh, the, the gospel had not yet come to Gentiles. So he had no idea really how important this was. And still yet God judged him right away. But what I would say as I was reading this was, is that, man, it's so easy to judge him and say, how could he do that? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Belshazzar's party was the first time that we see, was not the first time we see the hand of God writing things out concerning us. In fact, that very hand was also writing on Mount Sinai about a thousand years before, or 1,500 years before, as God took his finger and he wrote on the tablets, he wrote out the Ten Commandments. He actually did it twice uh, because they didn't have carbon copies back then, so he had to write that twice. But, uh, but he wrote out these Ten Commandments. And not just Ten Commandments. We're not just looking at commands and laws when we look at the Ten Commandments. Um, we're, we're, we're looking at balances, really. Remember he said, he said, your life has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. I, I, I wonder to myself, is what is it like for the Lord to put you on the balance and, and find your life wanting? Can you imagine that, that image? Because to me, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're comparing me to God, I'm never going to measure up. And, and we know that. We know the Ten Commandments is, is showing us that we'll never measure up. But can I just tell you this morning, is that as we look at the Ten Commandments, we're seeing what we're being compared against. And that's our goal in the Ten Commandments coming in the next the next several weeks, is that we want to know what's on the other side of the scale that causes us to not match God. That balances, the balancing scale is a matter of, of equaling what's on the other side. And to me, as we look into the Ten Commandments, what we're going to find is this. We're going to find the character of God. Now, typically what we find in the law is, is this very thing, that, that we're not fit, we're not holy, we're not able to be righteous. We find all those things. Paul tells us that how would I even know what sin was unless it was before the law? But I want to just look at it differently this morning. I want to look at what the law does. And the law says something about who God is. Because if, if he is this and I am not concerning these areas, maybe it, as I understand his rules, it'll show me more about who he is. Is this not what the goal is, is to know more about who he is? And so as we look at that, um, let's inspect it. As a matter of fact, just to kind of give you an idea, it's important that we can't uh, equate ourselves with God because we got to be holy and we, uh, we won't see God. Uh, until we're holy like him. So how do we step into the balance? Thankfully, Jesus Christ stepped into the balance for us, right? Because we were not able to live a righteous life, but Christ came and fulfilled the law. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled the law. And then thankfully, the Father put us in Christ. So when you walk in front of Jesus, when you walk in front of the God uh, who created all of heaven and earth, you know that no matter what you do on a good day or a bad day, is actually going to be good enough or bad enough for God to accept you because he accepted Jesus Christ. And because he accepted Christ, he's accepted you. And I don't know if you've ever been in this moment, but have you ever been living your righteous, sanctified life and then fell off the train for a bit? And then it was so hard to get back to prayer because you felt so dirty and so, you thought, Lord, why would you accept my prayer one more time? How many times are you going to forgive me? And you feel unfit to receive mercy and grace. Is it just Pastor Scott that's ever had that before? 
It's hard to get back to that place. When you know mercy is there and you know grace is there, but there's something in us that says, I'm, I'm not apt to receive this. And the Lord says, you're right. But that's why I put you in Christ so that he receives it all and you get the benefit of it. And so thankfully this morning when I look at the Ten Commandments, what I'm so thankful for is that everything that I realize I don't have I know that Jesus did for me because of that, and the Father was gracious enough to put me in Christ so I could receive communion and connection with him. So when we talk about the commandments, we're actually talking about the testimony of God. Look at this in Deuteronomy 6, 17. It says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Think about that for a second. The Lord, these are the Lord's testimonies. Now, that's crazy because when I hear a testimony, I always think about, well, what's your testimony, brother? You know, like, what the Lord deliver you from? You know, what's the Lord doing in your life? But I don't think God ever sinned, so I don't know what his, what's his testimony. What, what's he talking about here? What's his testimony? And so what we see is that his testimony is his witness, even to himself. A testimony is always a witness to what God is doing. And God even has a testimony to himself. That his ways are being expressed through his character. When we look at the Ten Commandments, what we see is this. That these laws and these rules are expressing who, God's, who God is in terms of his character. Because we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. We're dealing with the, with the characters and the testimonies of God. Let me give an example of how all of this ties back in to who God is. Look at Romans chapter 13, 9 through 10. Paul is talking about the commandments, the law, and he's showing us something about it. I want you to read it through the lens that this is describing um, a, a character of who God is or how we would describe God. It says in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now notice that, that love is the fulfilling of the law. If the fulfilling of the law is nothing more than a demonstration of love, then what is that saying about God? It's saying that these rules are an expression of his love towards us. Now wait, how, does that, how do you tell me that I'm sinful and that I'm bad, I'm not doing wrong things, and then say that's, that's me being loving to you? Well, that's because he's letting us know that you can't do what it takes to be in right standing with me. And so that's why I sent my son Jesus to you. If you didn't understand the bad news of your life, then you'd never be able to really appreciate the good news of Christ's coming. And therefore, you would never be able to be reconciled by placing your faith in Jesus to receive my love. And so what we see is this law is talking about God's love. And we know that speaks of him because God is love, 1 John 4.8. So therefore, any fulfilling of the commandment is done out of an act of love. And that's because the commandments themselves are God's testimony that he loves us and desires us. So what are you saying? Okay, now, are you saying, Pastor Scott, that God's laws and rules are a way he's saying he loves us? Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm saying this morning. So when he says... You shall not murder. That is him loving you, right? When he's, think about this. When you're a parent and you say, don't go into the street, is that you loving your child? Absolutely. 
Is, if, 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 are you loving your child when you say, pick up after yourself? Oh, parents, you got to be stronger than that. Kids, it's okay if you don't pick up after yourself. Your parents are kind of mediocre about that, so, you know, you just do what you feel like you need to. No, if I tell you to do something, it's because I love you. I'm not power tripping, right? I, I, I ask you these things. How many of you guys know that parenting is hard? It's easy to just let it go, right? It's easy to not be confrontational. But it's, it's, it is an act of love to know that I'm about to catch some attitude over this. Here we go, you know. Because y'all know the easiest thing in parenting is to say, you know, and just go on. It go, but that's not loving. That's not loving. And so thankfully the Lord has told us ten times, I'm about to catch some attitude, but I'm about to go down here and straighten some things out because I love these people. So let, look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 3. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. It feels very restrictive, but we know it's not. How many of us grew up in a house where mom and dad's rules, I mean, had real rules? Y'all had real rules in your house. Yeah, and what happened if you didn't didn't live up to the rule? Yeah, you found the ruler. That's an old term. But, you know, it may be a rod. It may be something other than that. Uh, I don't, you know, maybe your parents count to 2,000 and just said, don't do it again. I don't know. I'm not judging you if you do. <laughs> but, um, but I know that my mom and dad had some rules. My dad had rules I didn't even know about. I, I, I got in trouble over rules I didn't even know existed. And so um, they had some rules. But can I tell you that rules about cleanliness, language, dress, respect, relationships, money, all of those things were important, right? Because they were trying to teach us about certain things because our parents didn't want us living in filth. They didn't want people looking at you in disrespectful ways. They didn't want you to grow up a mooch or a beggar or being lazy. They didn't want you to have bad influences in your life. They wanted you to be independent. All those rules were communicating something about them. What do your rules, parents, what do your rules communicate to your kids? Stop and think for a second. If the, if the Ten Commandments are communicating about who God's character is, what do your rules in your house communicate about your character? It might be good for us as parents to say, what do I want my kid to know about me? Let me create some rules for that. Because really the, the, the significance of rules, right, are for them to to be what you want them to be. And if you're following after Christ, then those rules should mirror that, should parallel that. You see, rules help us understand the convictions and character of those who enforce them. So if you're following this morning, you realize how important that is. Can I tell you that rules in your family are the guardrails that move your family through the journey of life to the destination you want them to arrive at. Let me say that again. Rules in your family are the guardrails that move your family through the journey of life to the destination you want them to arrive at. And they'll not get there if you have no guardrails. Because if you have no guardrails, guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be going off-roading all your life. And so it's important to have those rules. So when we look at the rules concerning uh, the commandments, what is it telling us? Again, rules are nothing more than the convictions of your character. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, what does it show us to us? What does the first one say? So this is a very clear 
explanation and expectation of who God is. When he says there's no other gods before him, he is giving us a clear explanation and expectation as to who he is. Look in verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I don't know if you know how important that is, but you need to serve a God who is jealous. Have you ever dated someone who was jealous? Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a fun adventure. You know what I mean? Like it's a... <laughs> you, you learn really quick about some people. If they're really... Now, I will tell you this, that I'm jealous over my wife. If, if some guy wants to talk to her, oh, <laughs> oh, we're going to have some talks. You know what I mean? We're going to have to lay some hands on some people and pray for some people. Because... I am jealous for her love. And God is the same way. He says, even to the point that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God is a jealous God because he is wholly, entirely fixed on you. He is fixed on you. He's not busy with other things. He is jealous because his attention, his desire, and his devotion are on you. Look at Revelation 13.8. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been uh, written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. You know what I see there? I see that long before you and I were around, he was so fixed on us, he was setting up what it would take to redeem us. Before you were ever a, ever a thought in anybody else's mind, the Lord said, you know what, I want that person. I want them. I want to be wholly fixed on them. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure they can be with me for all eternity. Even before they matter to anybody else, they matter to me first. Matthew 25, 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The king prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's just an echo of what we read in Revelation. So God's attention has not only been fixed on us, but will be permanently fixed on us. Look at what Scripture says about his devotion to us. I love these Scriptures. Y'all might just need to write these down, put them on a sticky note, put them on your mirror. Just when you're having a bad day and you feel like God's forgotten about you and life is tough. Deuteronomy 7.9 says this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Hebrew 13.5 says this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I love this part. For he cannot deny himself because that's what he desires is you. He wants to be faithful to you. And it's not about how good you are or how faithful you are. His desire is to be faithful to you. I love a jealous God. In fact, we see in the book of Hosea, as we read about a priest and a prophet of God, and God says, hey, holy man, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Can you imagine being in prayer that day, the Lord say, hey, go marry that prostitute. Time out. 
What are you talking about? I am a priest. Do you know what people will say? I have kept myself pure my whole life, and you want me to go marry that woman that everybody has been with. I don't understand that, Lord. He says, go do it because I want to show the world my relationship to them, that I am a holy God. And that I am willing to chase you down. Hosea, he had to go find his wife in the streets, in the bed of other men. And eventually he had to go to the slave market while she stood naked and redeem her for less than a price of a slave. Because he was expressing to us the faithfulness of God to us. That he would redeem us from the slave markets. Your God is devoted to you. He is loyal to you. He is faithful to you. So away with that thinking that I messed up this weekend. He doesn't even know who I am anymore. No, no, no. He will go find you on the slave market and buy you back. Your God is a jealous God. I love that. Mind myself that I had messed up so bad. That I'm worse than, her name was Gomer. I, I wouldn't have married her just because of that. You know, Lord, I can't. Wait, Scott and Gomer? No, we ain't doing that, Lord. We ain't doing that. We ain't doing that. So there is without a question understanding that God has, that God has not set other people before him. But the question is, is, have we set other people before God, other things before God. Do you know, in fact, when it says that you shall have no other gods before me, that you must understand it from the perspective of a king. He is on his throne. He is looking at you, and he is saying, bring nothing before. I am the king, and you approach the throne. Bring nothing before me. Because when you come into the throne room of a king, you have to have permission to come. And if you bring things that are not supposed to be there, do you know what the king does? He kills it. That's why we have problems with our relationships because we bring things before the king. And the Lord says, if you put things that I have not okayed in my presence before me and you, the thing that I'm devoted to, I'm loyal to, I'm faithful to, I'll redeem from the slave market. If you put them before me, I will remove them from you because I am the king. Even though I'm the lover and the friend of your soul, I'm still the king and you cannot bring things before me because whatever is clouding my view, I know is clouding your view and I'll move it out of my way because I love you and I'm jealous for your sight, for your focus, for your attention. So have we brought God's before him? That's crazy for us because we think, no, I don't really have God's. We don't have idols. We don't craft things with our hands and our fingers like Isaiah says but look at Colossians 3 5 Colossians 3 5 says this put to death therefore what is earthly in you that's everything Lord that's everything sexual morality impurity passion evil and boy he throws the the net wide right here and covetousness which is idolatry in, in America we know now a long time ago we used to call it the Joneses. Get the Joneses. You wanted, you, you wanted to desire something. You wanted to covet somebody else's house, somebody else's job, somebody else's possession, somebody else's wife, somebody else's stuff, somebody else's opportunity, somebody else's whatever. You, you coveted that. And Paul is saying here that that covetousness itself is idolatry. So can I tell you that your God is what you love, what you seek, what you worship, what you serve, and allow to control you. And yes, those things, you'll know what those things are by your covetous heart. So what are we coveting? Your God 
or the practice of idolatry is when whenever you worship or what you worship begins to establish your identity because we only get our identity from Christ. And so if what we love is giving us an identity, then we have to understand that that is becoming an idol in our life if it's not already there. Wherever you absorb, whenever you absorb characteristics uh, from a devotion to something or someone other than God, um, basically you have revealed where your identity comes from. The old saying is simply this, is that you become what you behold, what you put your eyes on, what you fix your attention on. You become that thing. Uh, in fact, Ephesians 5.1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Can I tell you that you imitate what you're intimate with? You imitate what you're intimate with. I remember when Julie and I first started dating, we would go into uh, uh, these uh, shoe stores, and they had a whole lot of uh, ambiance, right? You know, loud music. It's, you remember this, way? We'd go in there, like champs. She has no idea. It was, it was, it was a different girl, I guess. So... Uh, we're, we're going in there, and I know it's her because Julie does not like high-energy environments. And she's like, I can't stay here. I can't stay here. It's too loud. It's too clamorous. People are, hey, what kind of shoe are you looking for? You know, and Julie's like, I got to go. I got to go. got to go. got to go. So she doesn't do that. She likes calm, orderly, serene, structured environments, you know. I'm in there raving. Like, I'm okay with it, you know, right? And so I realized... Not only, not only loud spaces, but, but, but then she has these phrases. Julie loves to say cool beans. Uh, and now my daughter says that stuff too. And I've never heard cool beans in my, have you ever heard cool beans in your entire life? Y'all, 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 y'all from the hills though, so, right? So y'all know. I, 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 well, I never heard it before. I'm cool beans. What the, is that cold beans? What is that? You know, like, is that like a medicinal thing? Uh, cool beans. And then her mannerisms, the way she would act. What I realized is that the more I'm around Julie, the more I'm like, cool beans. That's, that's like, and then I'm like, it's too loud in here. It's too loud in here. I, what, I, what I'm saying is, is that the more you're around something, the more you're intimate with something, you find yourself becoming like them. That's why when you get to be as old as some of you might be in here, you look over and you go, that, that girl looks just like me. You act just like me. You're, you, you know, you're on your 50th, 60th wedding anniversary, and you, you feel like you married your twin. We're going to move on from there. All right. <laughs> that pastor preached the truth today. I've been telling you all your life. You know, go out there and get, no, we'll keep on going. So, so what I'm saying is, is that as you get intimate with something, you start to imitate that, and that's by design. So how do we get to a place of intimacy away from God and on other things? Are you ready? Because I know you've been thinking this whole thing through. No, Pastor Scott, I don't know how. You feel like I have idols in my life and I'm worshiping other things other than God. Let me take you down the journey of how that happens. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of being double-minded. And so as we look at Psalms 8611, here's what we see. We see that King David himself had a problem with his heart being divided. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and unite my heart to fear your name. That word unite means to designate exclusively. What does a heart that needs uniting look like? Can I tell you that before you ever get to a, a heart that's divided, you get to a heart that's distracted? A heart can be distracted. How do you have a distracted heart? Well, really, it's simple. You just live in this world, right? Everyday life distracts your heart. Anxiety of the future distracts your heart. Relationships are distracting. Jobs can be distracting. 
Responsibilities can be distracting. Opportunities can be distracting. But distraction is almost always a season. Almost. It's when distracted hearts turn into divided hearts that we have to be mindful of that. You can be distracted, but you got to make sure that you bring your focus and your priorities back to God. But, but what happens is if we neglect a heart that's distracted, it comes divided. It becomes divided. So what does a, a divided heart look like? Look with me through some scripture. We're going to run through quite a few scriptures here. And here's what we see concerning a divided heart. Luke eleven seventeen says this, But he, knowing their hearts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household or a divided mind falls. So Jesus was talking about the alleged complaint that he was working on behalf of Beelzebub or Satan himself. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not how it's going to work. Because a house divided doesn't stand against itself. So what is he teaching us here? He's saying that a divided heart is one that works against itself. That you love one thing, but you love something that's in contrast to what you love. And so it begins to work against itself. And just like a house, so does your heart fail when it's divided in its interests. So unifying the heart requires for you to engage with all your heart. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice that it's very specific. It didn't just say your heart. It said all your heart. You have to focus. You have to make sure that all of your loyalties are fixed on him. 1 Samuel 7, 3 says, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods or competing gods, and the asterisk from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with most of your heart. No, all of your heart. Proverbs 3, 5, you've heard this said many a time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Notice the contrast there, that your understanding gives way to a divided heart. But if you will lean upon him, you must trust in him wholly, knowing that if he has all your heart, then whatever you desire, he will fill completely. Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then James takes a spin on this, chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, that is, believing one thing and affirming another, having a heart towards this and a heart towards that. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So double-minded refers to a divided heart where one side longs for one thing and the other side longs for another, and those things contrast each other, which cause the heart and the house to fall. James 4, 8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify, sanctify, set apart, make holy, make clean, you double-minded. Wow. That when we're double-minded, the Lord sees us as, as, as an impurity in our heart and our life. Hearts that are double-minded are impure hearts. Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, 
For he either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so he was saying here, really, that's this the contrast that exists. You're either going to love one and hate the other and serve one and despise the other. Notice he did not say, you shall not love one or you shall not serve one. He, but rather he says, you cannot. It's not possible. We see this even in the proof of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah when he was, when he was uh, uh, putting the wall back together and he left for 10 or 12 years and he came back. Notice what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons of yourselves. And, and notice this, how he, he gives the foundation to this. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations where there was no king like him? And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil or act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah is simply saying this, you idiots. You think you're smarter than the king Solomon? You think you're wiser than him? You think you're more blessed by him? And even he had a problem when he divided his heart. So how do we fix this divided heart? It's not Nehemiah's way. Oh, that won't work for everybody. But we know this. It's not, even, it's not even information. It's not even wisdom. It's not even knowledge. It didn't work for King Solomon. But here's what we do. We, we pray like David. Back in Psalms 86 and 11, he says, Teach me your way. O oh Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. What is he saying there? Unite my heart to fear your name. Here's how you, here's how you unite this heart. It means to join all the purposes, the resolutions, and the affections of our heart together to fear and glorify the name of God. When the heart is not at unity with itself, the work of faith cannot go on. When it is divided, the work of faith in our life cannot go on. The heart must be one, and the work must be one. And, you know, the best way I, I was reading through this, I was like, Lord, show me, a, show me a, a way to really understand this. I'm a visual guy. I like to see things. And so uh, I, I, I was down here at, uh, uh, I guess, the park down here. I don't know what you call it. It's called where the tennis courts are and basketball um, uh, goals are, and there's a little river down there. And so what I noticed was is that this river was down there was shaping these rocks, you know, had been flowing for a long time. And what I realized was this, is that if this river had too many offshoots, too many other little streams, this little creek, right, that it would not have the power it needed to shape this rock. And you and I are the same way in life. We have this life. We have this heart, really, that is like a rock. It needs to be shaped. It needs to be molded. 
But if our heart is divided, it's like a stream that has many other tributaries and other little streams that offshoot from that. It's not going to have what it needs when it arrives at the place to be shaped. It won't have the strength. It won't have the force. It won't have the power to do that because it's so divided. But if you and I can take, for instance, uh, man, the rivers that cut so many canyons in this world, in America, if we'll look at those rivers and realize that there was no other dividedness on its, on its stream all the way down, but it cut right through the rock. It shaped and it molded those things. If you and I can be focused on the one thing that we've been called to do, on the one God who has jealous and redeemed us, that our lives can be shaped. And so many times I hear, Pastor, I can't defeat this addiction. I can't overcome my will. I can't do those things. And my question would always be to them, is your heart divided? You're struggling because you got all this attention going on. And the Lord is saying, if you will place nothing before me, then when I come to your place in life, when I come to the end of the river, of the stream, my water will shape you. But if you will distract yourself from the power of God, from the presence of God, from the holiness of God, and from the word of God, you'll never be shaped. And so that's where I'm at with us today. Is how are you shaping your life? And can I tell you that a, a, a real good way to measure what's in your life, how you're shaping in that, is to look at the currency that God has given you. You know, God has given us all the same amount of currency. The one thing that you cannot create, the one thing that you can't go back and, 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 and redeem is time. Everybody in here has 24 hours a day. Nobody has any more, no, but nobody has anything less. And so when we look at our time, when Pastor Scott looks at his time, I have to ask myself, have I been good with it? Have I been a good steward with it? Have I divided it in other areas that I shouldn't have been? Or have I given it wholly to God? And so if I could just, if I can just stretch a little bit into your life and say, I don't know if you've put other gods before him. I don't know if your heart's divided. But I guarantee you, if I sat down with you for a whole day, I'd probably figure it out. Because I know that wherever you spend your time at, I know that's where your heart is. Wherever you spend your time at is where you spend your money. And wherever you spend your money is where you spend your heart. And so where is your time? Where is your devotion? You say, oh, Pastor Scott, that's difficult because I'm a busy man. Maybe. But you're not too busy to eliminate some divisions of your life and stay focused on God. I want you to remember that God is jealous over you. That means he's jealous over your talents that he gave you, over the treasures that he's given you, and over the time that he puts life in your lungs to experience every day. So in summary, let me just say, God has clearly placed no other people before him. His heart is wholly devoted to us because he is fixed on us. He is jealous over us and anything that robs our affections. Can I tell you, I, I, remember, I remember this story a long time ago. I hope she'll forgive me over this. It was Christmas, and we were walking out of a play practice, kids' play practice. And as I walked out the back door, I saw all the kids lined up coming this way. And I looked over, and my daughter, she's about five years old at the time, Madeline, and this little boy has her hand. That's a sad human being right there. 
He can't do anything. He's a pitiful. He ain't got all the teeth in his head. How in the world are you going to compete for my daughter's hand already? You pitiful, little. And, I, and, and so my mom was just thinking, Scott, why are you so bent over a five-year-old boy, <laughs> you know? Like, I was, I don't know about, I was jealous. Like, I didn't like that at all, you know? I wanted to just walk up and be like, hey, 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 don't you got some nursery to go to? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I wasn't okay with that. It lit me up, man. And she's just five. He's just five. He don't know. He, he barely even know, knows what, what time and when it's time to eat. But, but I had to ask myself, why am I so jealous over that? And, and it, it took me a bit to really kind of process that. And here's what I realized. I realized that that, that made me so jealous because I knew in my heart that that five-year-old boy could not do for my daughter like I could do for her. He could not give her the things I could give her. He would not love her the way I would love her. He would not forgive her and overlook her, her imperfections the way I would. He would come up short in every aspect of life, and he could not add not one quality to her life that I couldn't do it better. I was jealous. Rightfully so. And I wonder if the Lord looks at our heart and sees us holding hands with some five-year-old little devotion, relationship, job, addiction, and his father's heart says, what can they give you that I can't give better? They can't give you time. They can't give you life. They can't give you love. They can't give you what I can give you. But you know, when God tells you you should have no other gods before him, it's not because he's power tripping. It's because there's a jealousy inside of him that says no other God will do for you like I will do for you. And I want you to know what love is. I want you to know what life is. That is a God who says, I don't want you to settle for lesser things. I want you to choose me. A heart that sells for lesser things is a divided heart. It's a heart that is led into idolatry, a heart that brings other gods before God. And here's what I want you to know as we leave today. When God said, you shall have another gods before me, what he was saying is, is, I don't want you to look to another God to do for you what I can do for you. And so today as we close, um, every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to just deal with a few things, a couple of things actually. First, I believe in my heart and my spirit that there is someone here today that has been struggling with their life. So many times when we try to leave the prodigal life and come back to Christ and, and to affirm him as king and savior, we feel like we have to get all cleaned up, get ready to receive a robe and a ring and be righteous before God and come back to church and be worthy of his love. And, and if that's you, then that, that will never happen. What I want you to know is that if you've not been living your life for God like you should, there is a God who is willing to find you in the slave market naked and dirty, and he will pay whatever it costs to redeem you. You do not have to come in any certain way. You just have to come. And so this morning, if there's anybody in here that would say, Pastor Scott, I'm ready to come back and to know him and trust him and make him my Lord and Savior. If that's you, no one's looking around. This is between me and you and God. I want to pray for you in just a second. If that's you, will you raise your hand? Let me know. You want to choose Christ. 
You want to know his love? Thank you. Thank you. And the second thing I, I want to pray, for, pray about is simply this, is a divided heart. Ha, ha, have you had a divided heart? Have you been given loyalties that only belong to God? Have you been given time and devotion and your passion? Have you, have, been, have you been drawing identity from things that you should not be drawing identity from? Has your heart been divided? If that's you, you say, Pastor Scott, I need to get united in my heart again. I need to search him with all my heart again. You raise your hand. Let me know who I'm praying for this morning. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Would everybody stand for me? Caleb's going to sing in just a second, but here's what I want to do. As pastor, I love to pray for you. And whether you raise your hand to receive Christ or you raise your hand because you had a double-minded uh, uh, issue in your life you want to deal with, will you do me a huge favor of just coming down here and let me pray for you? In fact, our prayer team is going to come down here right now, if you don't mind. We're going to be, we're going to be ready. And so if you want to come down and just pray at the altar or if I can pray with you, I'll invite you to come. And go ahead and just come right now as they sing.